Emmanuel, you are with us. In the light of the world, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts this morning, that you would do so through the means of your holy word. You drive out the shadows of, of fear and uncertainty and shame and guilt. Lord, that we can have life in you today. Convict us. And we make ourselves open to the things that your word would show us that need to be different about how we see you and about how we live in light of who we are today. Help us to do that. And yet, Lord, comfort us with the things that have always been the same, your love and your faithfulness on, for us. And it's in your, your name we pray. Amen. All right, grab a Bible. If you would, we're on page 623. We're going to camp out in Isaiah chapter 64. We're going to be also in chapter 65 in a couple minutes, so stay tuned for that. You heard us say already it's a season of Advent. Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. Our text today is from Isaiah 64. And the way that the chapter begins, it sounds like good news. Verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Let's pause right there. These words sound a little bit like the words that I hear in my house sometimes uh, when my kids call from another room. Dad, can you come down here? <laughs> and it's usually for one of two reasons. Either that Adam or Jude need some kind of help, some rescue, something they can't do for themselves, or Adam and Jude are angry at each other. <laughs> And they need me to intervene and break up an argument. Now, being the imperfect parent that I am, can you guess, am I always in a good mood when I arrive? No. The arrival of God is good news. The arrival of God is not just good news. Look with me further, second half of verse 5, bottom of the first column. It says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? Jump to verse 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. What does this mean? What's Isaiah showing us? Is it the arrival of God comes with his anger? Let me make clear. It is not his anger at you. It is his anger for you. On your behalf. Because the arrival of God with his anger, his anger is not like your anger, it's not like my anger. I mean, our anger is reactive, it's unsteady, uneven, it's self-righteous, but the anger of God is always just, it's always right, it's always out of love for you. On your behalf, he promises to act. His anger is not at you, it is for you. And I would argue today that you need an angry God. One who is angry at injustice for you, it'll give you hope. And one who is angry at our sin, it'll give you peace. We're going to look at those two things together over the next couple of minutes. And then finally, a couple of simple practical ways anger works in our life today. So first, God's anger at injustice. Now let's go to the next slide. Uh, I think it's easier for us to forget that 
The way we, we read these words today is not like the way the people of God heard these words when they were written by the prophet Isaiah and read out loud in the temple 700 BC. I mean, we read them today and we read verse one, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, look at your awesome power. We read them as Westerners who were uncomfortable with being uncomfortable and long for God to act as quickly as possible to make our lives as comfortable as possible. That's different than the way that they were written. The historical context, 700 BC, the two nations of Israel, it was one, now it's two, there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and Isaiah the prophet is in the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, and it's only a matter of time before the people of God are experiencing terrible injustice at the hands of their enemies. Only a number of years before the city of Jerusalem will be leveled to the ground, the temple burned and destroyed, their children's heads dashed against the rocks. Read about that in Psalm 137, or don't. Their hands chained, taken captive, away to a foreign city, a foreign nation, in exile. Very different than the way that we read these words today. Do we have injustice today, though? Absolutely. And have you experienced difficulty and trauma and mistreatment at the hands of unjust, selfish people? I'm sure you have. Are you going through the list right now? On Thursday, I went to the eye doctor. Uh, about a mile from here, updated my prescription, and the doctor confirmed what continues to be true, that my vision is steadily changing and not in the right direction, in the wrong one. Uh, it's not getting back better, and without my contacts, though I can see fine up close, far distances are blurry for me. I'm nearsighted, which, at least according to my doctor, is apparently good news because it means the older I get, I won't be chasing reading glasses around my house for the rest of my life. Some of you know what that's like. I'd argue this, that unless you have an angry God, you'll continue to be nearsighted if you miss what he promises to do in the future. And that his intervening gracious work out of love on your behalf in the form of anger against the enemies who have wronged you and mistreated you and have done great evil in this world will get what they're due. What do I mean when I say that? Well, look at, with me at verse four. It says this, for from of old, no one has heard, has heard, has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Oh, that's good news. Turn the page, chapter 65, verse 17. Uh, the book of Isaiah ends in the next chapter on a high note. But here, Isaiah is talking about the second arrival and the advent of God. We've heard first in chapter 64, but the first arrival and the advent of God. Verse 60, uh, chapter 65, verse 17, he says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 
I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. I tell you that to tell you this. Unless you see that you have a God who will return with the sword, the sword of vengeance against those who have perpetrated evil, whether on purpose or not, it will be always hard for you to let go of your sword and put it down. And you'll be angry if you're only nearsighted and not farsighted. It will be hard for you to put down your sword and to forgive unless you see one who in history will return with the sword to end evil and injustice and make this place the one that our hearts long for it to be and wipe every tear from every eye and create the new heavens and the new earth and the kind of garden that we once had that we've lost and been longing for since Adam and he fell into sin. He's angry at injustice and he is angry for you on your behalf. That's number one. From God's anger at injustice to God's anger at our sin. Now, um, our son Adam is in fourth grade and next week, right before Christmas break, the fourth and fifth graders from her, his school are going to Young Ameritown. Do you know what this place is? Some of you have been there. I see some hands. Awesome. Uh, it's a place, interactive hands-on experience where you can go to learn about business and economics and justice and uh, Adam decided that he would like to apply for the role of judge and in order to become the judge who represents Hopkins Elementary School he had to be voted by his classmates in order to be voted by his classmates he had to give a 90 second speech on Friday now Adam gave me permission to share with you the end of his speech he says this If I'm elected judge, I'll treat all of you equally. And I will lead by solving problems for you and making fair decisions. And if you choose me to be your judge, you'll have justice. And if you have justice and things are fair for all of us, young Ameritown will be a better place for our community and for you. Thank you. Uh, We made signs that he put up in the hallway that said a vote for Adam is a vote for justice. You know, red, white, and blue. Uh, This, of course, you know, came up right before bedtime uh, the night before. And... (laughs) I said, well, uh, I, he asked if I could help him, and um, as it turns out, Adam won the election in the primary for his class, and I feel kind of proud about that. Like the, the science teacher who helped us. <laughs> yeah, so vote for Adam. It must be how science teachers feel who help their kids with science projects. You know, the pastor helping with the speech. When you look at verses five through seven, There's something in here about the justice that is equally distributed on all of us. Verse five, chapter 64. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Verse six, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. 
There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Two things. One, do you notice the use of the word we? Who's the problem here? It's not them. Not those who are guilty of acts of injustice. The problem's not out there. The problem's right here. That's number one. It's not they, it's we. Do you notice the use of the word righteous? Look back at verse six, second half. It doesn't say what we might expect. We might expect it to say all of our sinful deeds are the wrong ones. That's not what it says. What does it say? And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's saying it lightly. Look at the Hebrew. What's Isaiah getting at here? He's saying that we, not just they, are the problem. He's saying that you and I can do the right thing for the wrong reason and our motives for our righteous deeds are just as dangerous as our bad deeds. That we're all equal. And unless you have a God who is angry at our sin, you'll be angry too. You'll be angry at the people who have wronged you and you won't just be angry, you will stay angry because you think you're better than they are. You can't believe what they've done. You'll find yourself saying, well, look how good I've been. I can't believe this has happened to me or that they would do that thing against me. And as a result, you won't treat them like equals because you're not their equal. You're better than they are. And you won't serve them. You won't love your neighbor as yourself because you don't have any love for your neighbor in the first place. Isaiah says that you're righteous anger is one thing. It's your unrighteous anger, which is most of our anger, most of the time is a filthy attempt to be good in your own eyes. And unless you have a God who gets angry, not just at sin in general, but at your sin, but an angry God who is angry for you, not at you, you'll be angry at other people too. A God who gets angry at injustice will give you hope. A God who is angry at sin gives you peace. Because you don't deserve the righteousness and the love of God any more than they do. Okay, someone says, let's get back to the love of God. After all, it's nearly Advent, or it is Advent, it's nearly Christmas. And why is it that in the church we spend a lot of time talking about sin? And what about the good news? Can we get back to something peaceful and hopeful? Well, let me tell you this the God of the Bible is the God of both. Because what the scriptures show us is a God of loving fury and of furious love who rent the heavens and who came down. And he would have been justified. He would have been right to pour out his wrath and his anger on your filthy deeds. Instead, he took all the wrath and he took all the anger and he gave it to his son. He's the judge who was judged who didn't come to bring the sword of divine justice upon you. He, the one who came to bear the sword of divine justice upon himself. And it went straight to his heart until there was nothing left. Nothing left. No anger, all dissipated, all gone, all spent on him so that there could forever be nothing but love and mercy and forgiveness faithfully forever for you. 
It's C.S. Lewis who says, anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. Because you need an angry God who in his love took his anger that was aimed at your sin and turned it aside on his son for you. And if you don't see that, You'll miss how loved and how precious and how valuable you are to him. You'll, you'll miss how far he was willing to go out of great love for you. What difference does that make for us? On a Sunday morning at the beginning of December in 2023, I mean, what does this look like in practice today? Well, I think two things. One has to do with God and one has to do with us. First, how we deal with God. I think it's too easy for us to pick and to choose the things in the scriptures about God that are comforting and to dismiss the things from the scriptures that seem convicting or uncomfortable. And let me just say, to the degree that you do that, that's the way that you deal with God, what you have is not a God at all. Not one in, whom, in whose image you were formed, you have a God instead, a God of your image. And at best, he's a rescuer when you need him, but you dismiss him when you don't. At best, he's an advisor whose wisdom you can take when you need it and you can dismiss when you don't. What you have is not a God at all. You're the God and you've made him in your image. You've reduced him. How do you deal with God? You don't. You let God deal with you. That's how you do it. You let God deal with you on his terms, not your terms. And if you do, what you'll find is a God who's greater than you are. That's a dangerous thing to do because it involves risk. I want to ask you, is that a, a risk that you're willing to take? How we deal with God what about our anger? Because I said a few moments ago, most of the time, most of us, our anger is not the righteous kind. Most of the time, our anger is the self-righteous kind. And when we get anger self-righteously, so often we do one of two things. Either we get too big, we let it out, or we get too small, and we stuff it in. Fight or flight. Back to C.S. Lewis. Same work that I referenced earlier called Letters to Malcolm, a fictional friend that he's writing to. He says this. Think of the fullest reconciliation between mortals. Was peace restored through moral lecture? Was the offense said not to matter? Was it hushed up or passed over? The poet William Blake knew better. So now here's Lewis quoting uh, poet who said this. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. Or did not end. Angry with my friend. Told my wrath. My wrath did not end. I was angry with my foe. I hid my wrath. My wrath did grow. Lewis continues. He says this. You know better. Anger no peevish fit of temper, but generous, just anger 
and indignation passes, though not necessarily at once, into embracing, exultant, rewelcoming love. That's how friends and lovers are truly reconciled by hot wrath and hot love. Such anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. I'm thankful to one of my favorite commentators for this reference. What's Lewis saying here? He says it's not moral lecture and letting it fly or expressing it that will work. It's not shrugging it off or letting it go and sucking it in that will solve it. It's only when you say, I love you, and you start there. And you put your anger on the sin, not on the person who's committed the sin, and you say, look, I love you, and I don't like what you're doing to yourself. And I don't like what you're doing to me and how what you're doing is affecting us both and I won't put up with it anymore. I'm upset about it and I'm hurt by what you've done. But I want you to know I'm not only angry, I want you to know that I love you too. And I think if you do that, if you put your anger on the sin, on the evil, and when you pour out your wrath upon what's been done, not upon the person who's done it in your life very often, what you find is that anger is really the thing that wakes the other person up and you fall into each other's arms. It's risky to do that. Is that a risk you're willing to take? To call on this God and to say, come down here. And to know that when you do, it will feel like a risk to give him your righteous anger against injustice and evil that's been done in the world and injustice and evil that's been done to you. But if you do, it'll give you peace. And it will feel like a risk to give him your righteous anger and your unrighteous anger against the people in your life who are just as guilty as you are. But if you do, it'll give you peace. But if you're willing to do that, to say not just come down here, but to say come down here and melt my heart with your loving fury and with your furious love. If you do, it will be not simply a risk, but it will be for your eternal reward. In the name of Jesus, the coming King and the righteous judge of all mankind. Amen.